Uh, well, we do want to turn to uh, the, the issue, one of the issues that we raised, namely some of the people who were involved in uh, those scenes and online, because we're going to move on to the Garda operation that's underway in the wake of the riots in Dublin. One strand of the investigation relates specifically to activity on social media prior to, during and indeed after those scenes on November 23rd. At least five prominent and well-known far-right online activists and conspiracy theorists are being investigated with detectives examining their online posts and recordings from 1.30pm on the day of the riots. I've been speaking to Kieran O'Connor. He's a senior analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He monitors far-right activity and I began by asking him if the conversations on messaging platforms since November 23rd suggest far-right activists believe the Dublin riots marked a success for them. They have been doing so every day, really. Um, they've been using mainstream social media platforms, alternative social media platforms. And yeah, as you say, they see this as um, a successful moment for the kind of expansion or um, wider awareness of their movement, of their cause. And there's been a lot of, I suppose, promotion or celebration from international attention as well. So there's been um, figures in the UK, in the US, but even across Europe as well, who've been championing the cause um, and and this idea, this notion of the Irish people rising up. Now, without getting into kind of the personalities involved, Mm. how many are interested in actually gaining power in the Dáil and how many are happy to leave it to agitation on the street and on social media? Yeah, it's hard to to put a figure or put a kind of a a slice on the the proportion. But um, what we do know in this country are that there are a number of political parties who would promote far right ideologies that are seeking um, that have sought political office. um, But I don't think they've passed two percent in the polls when they have ran for office. But I think at a wider level, there's, there's a wider movement online and there's a broad constituency of actors. There are, there are um, groups, individuals, um, there's online communities as well. And then there's kind of um, kind of influencers within that movement. And then they have various motivations. Some do have political motivations. They're kind of linked to political parties or their own kind of campaigns. Others are interested in, you know, financial motivation. They might be um, live streaming, live streaming on YouTube, or they might be making videos, and then they'll also be seeking donations or seeking financial support for the the content, I suppose, that they're making. And then others are purely ideologically committed. And when it comes to discussing some of the issues that are raised, obviously the issue of immigration has been discussed possibly more in the last week, but. There are communities and people within communities who resent not being consulted about um, perhaps international protection centres being set up in their area. There are others who have concerns about other areas that the far right are concerned about. At what point should the public space allow people to discuss their concerns without the people who are raising these concerns being pigeonholed as far right and potentially leaving only the far right to represent them. Yeah, I think it's a very important distinction to make. And even in the the research that, that we do, for example, I mean, we don't focus on the, the local protest groups that are campaigning over the availability of resources and the pressures that, you know, an influx of asylum seekers might um, contribute towards pressures on that. I think the distinction that's important to make here is that the the protest groups or movements or figures who kind of campaign or discuss immigration or asylum seekers in terms of false, misleading and uh, inflammatory claims. So in order to facilitate a dialogue in the public space that 
puts more accurate information into the public domain. Should more of that be happening? Yes, and I think I think more dialogue and more debate at, at local community levels is is only a positive thing. But it's um, it's not really, I suppose, a fair equation when it happens online on social media platforms because what we've seen in in, in research that we've done is that in these kinds of online spaces where um, immigration or various other topics are being discussed, the most prolific or, or popular actors online uh, who are active in local communities, not just in the kind of broader national conversation kind of spaces, um, are often figures who have a far right um, background. They have a history of promoting and using false, misleading and inflammatory claims about migrants or about asylum seekers. Yeah, well, how can that be cleaned up? I mean, we've seen the government elevate their concerns about what went on on social media last last week, elevate that to a European level under the Digital Services Act. We've heard that the Minister for Justice wants to meet representatives of the platform X. Yeah, there's a lot of hope for the, the Digital Services Act. I mean, first of all, the DSA will potentially transform an existing EU code of practice on disinformation into a co-regulatory code of conduct. And that in turn would compel signatories of major online technology or advertising organizations to commit to the demonetization of mis and disinformation. Um, in all of this, you you wrote a report in the Institute for Strategic Dialogue called Ishkafui Halov about you know people's uh, the the activities of the the far right online and COVID was seen to have been a game changer. And yet most of the catastrophization that happened during that period about the government leveraging repressive measures as to why the lockdowns were happening, as to what the long-term effects would be, never came to pass. And yet that didn't seem to disabuse people who engaged in that in, in of their suspicions. It doesn't seem to be evidence-based. So how do you counter people's belief in disinformation if even when presented with contrary evidence, it doesn't seem to shake their belief. Yeah, it's it's enormously difficult and you're trying to, I suppose, <clears throat> you're trying to battle uh, a large number of even kind of psychological issues too, like COVID and, and this kind of crisis is a, is, a, is a very pivotal or influential moment for the kinds of support for belief of of conspiracy theories. And yes, COVID was a catalyst for the proliferation of conspiracy theories, mis and disinformation, but also for the growth and reach of communities that are built upon a conspiracy theory worldview. We're kind of living in the in the after effects of that. I think we've all become aware in this country to varying degrees since 2020 that online platforms are being used to create, share false, misleading and potentially harmful claims. And um, yeah, the research that, that we put out kind of tracks the, 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 the growth and spread of this movement and illustrates how that dynamic has evolved since COVID and how conspiracy, you know, communities that became influenced and, and, and supportive and active in spreading conspiracy theories about COVID moved on to other topics. So they moved on to discussing um, the Ukraine and Russia conflict from February 2022 onwards in that kind of conspiratorial light and then on to other issues too, most notably, yeah, immigration uh, over the last 12 months in particular. And I think that the, the research project also provides evidence and I think we've seen as well in the last two weeks that that links across various topics how online discussions containing mis and disinformation are fueling offline hostility and violence. And that was Kieran O'Connor, senior analyst with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and their report is called Ishka Fui Halov. Um Kieran Cuff, to you first on this 
some of the issues that are being raised by people uh, have common themes across the country. This uh, this issue of people not being vetted. When when a constituent comes to you and raises that issue, if it has happened, what have you said to them? I've said that vetting is not the first thing you do if somebody is fleeing violence or fleeing war. Uh, The first thing to do is to provide them with refuge uh, and to listen to their story. and I don't them, think that we that should. I don't think we should apply different criteria to what we would apply to um, uh, an Irish person seeking housing provision, uh, and that we would look at somebody who's not from Ireland in a completely different light. I think really what comes out of this discussion is the need to consult just, and the but need but to could inform. I just, could just ask you one question on that. It's an issue that comes up repeatedly and yet no reference seems to be made in answer to it about the fact that people are sat down for an initial interview, that people are photographed, they are fingerprinted, Mm -hmm. there is a second interview, there is a background check conducted and yet this persists and there doesn't seem to be information that is in the public domain being uttered by public representatives to counter this. Well, I think we need to be clearer about that, uh, but we also need to be clearer and demand more from social media platforms that are amplifying these messages. There's messages going around uh, about percentages of criminals from those who've come to Ireland, which are patently false. Uh, and there is an obligation now under the Digital Services uh, Directive, under the uh, Digital Services Act, uh, to police this and to take down misinformation. So what what, what response do you expect or would you hope for from Europe now that the government has elevated this? What support would you like to see in terms of countering this? Because obviously these are international corporations. I would expect to see a much faster response from all social media responses out there. And in recent months, one platform, X, has become an outlier. And the the head of X has become an outlier in his own pronouncements. Now, this new act does give us the tools to take down misinformation. It does allow for fines of 10 million or 20% of the revenue. Uh, here in Ireland, we have a new media commissioner uh, in the Commission Namian. I know my colleague, uh, Minister Catherine Martin, has met uh, uh, with them. And when that office is fully operational uh, in February, Ireland will have very strong powers. And you, but you, in the interim, the European Commission should okay, act. Right. And I'm in contact with them to ensure that they okay. do take a- okay. adequate measures. OK. Uh, M- Michael Healy-Ray, to, to, to you on, on the same question, when a constituent comes to you and talks about unvetted people uh, coming to the country or talks about criminality, have, I mean, have you told them what the process of asylum is, what level of background checks are engaged in, and on the other issue of criminality, that the prison statistics simply don't bear out the notion that people coming from abroad are more likely to be engaged in criminality? One of the biggest problems that Irish people have with our immigration policy at the moment is the lack of thoroughness in it, in that when a person comes here seeking asylum, the length of time it actually takes to process that application is too long when you compare it to other countries. We're just too slow in coming up with an answer whether a person has a right to remain here or not. And the other question that everybody asks is, Why is it that people pass (coughs) so many other parts of Europe and cross so many other borders to come to Ireland? It's as if Ireland is too attractive for 
uh, people. In other words, they just want to come here rather than anywhere sure, else. Sure, but so what, we, I suppose just uh, and we'll get to that point in a moment. Yes. But when they are photographed and fingerprinted here and have passed through other European countries, the state has the ability to check this person's background once that happens. I mean, have you made that clear to constituents who have come to you with concerns about vetting? I do, but there's another issue that people can't get their heads around. How is it that people get on a plane and when they get off a plane, they have no absolutely no documentation. They have no passport. They have nothing whatsoever. That type of behavior has to be called out that we we have to get stronger in our action against that type of activity. Okay, I'll come back to you, Michael Lillery. I just want to go to Mairead Farrell. When people come to you and ask you about this issue of vetting and concerns like that, what do you tell them? I think this is actually really good that we're having this conversation because I think it, there's a whole lack of having this conversation in general and um, I make it clear to people that um, they are vetted. There is there is a process um, so asylum seekers obviously have to register with the state um, at their point of arrival and there's an interview and all that but to be perfectly honest with most people so I'd go canvassing and it does come up so obviously we have an issue with the far, far right and we're totally aware of that and and then there is, I suppose, um, the f- far right um, capturing an, a certain audience and generally an audience that have been completely failed and neglected by the state uh, through social policies. We have to be frank about that. The most, the thing that most people um, raise when it is an issue um, is in relation to housing because they've been failed in terms of housing themselves. And it's very important to always be, be very clear um, that the, the problem with housing and the failure of housing is at, at the feet of government and the people in power that is the government and not those I suppose without the power I know, but those I suppose people with these uh, asylum seekers but I think that's an important point because the, it is the, something the, that is being raised but the sentiment more so, I suppose, that has been raised before of direct your anger towards government not the asylum seekers can sometimes be taken uh, quite literally as we saw outside in, in events outside the Dáil Yes, but again, I think that's a, that realistically is a small minority and, and perhaps even so a minority in terms of far right. I think when people, when I talk about, look, I've protested all my life, I think, um, realistically, and I'll be out at the Palestine March uh, today as well. Um, so I think what people need to be able to do is obviously um, convey their anger at government's policies in terms of failing them when it comes to housing uh, and many other things, and they should be able to do that. And it's very important that they do that. And the absolute majority of people, when they go out and protest, it does not end up um, in any um, serious, you know, negative situation. We see protests outside the Dáil every single day, whether it be one or two people protesting right. at how they were failed by government or larger protests. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, so just briefly, two things. Since uh, a year ago, there's been an accelerated process for international protection. Uh, so Michael did talk about the times being long. No, you, you, they are being speeded up. You, and, and on the documentation, you... you well, I, I would be critical uh, of those who lose documentation, but that's only a very small percentage of those who are coming to Ireland. So okay. I think we have to be careful that we don't pretend that it's a very large percentage right. because it, it very clearly isn't. Okay. Okay. But going back to Murray's point, uh, just to say, look, people do have legitimate grievances about housing, about uh, employment, about other things. And, and we do need to listen to them. Yes, we do need to speed up housing provision. But at a time when the economy has been in overdrive, well, a huge amount of people have been gonna, coming we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna touch on Ireland that, for on work that anyway. But, but, and it's hard to provide the housing that we need. OK, before we just before we get to the break, Michael Healy Ray, you are joining us from uh, Kerry today, where I know there's a lot of shock and sadness following uh, a farming tragedy where you are. Yes, well, I'd just like to say that we're so sorry for the, the, the events of yesterday. 
where uh, a, a local lady in the Black Valley lost her life, a, a, a local farmer, Mary Tagdy, uh, near Dinihi from Beaufort. Uh, she was tending her sheep as she always does. A great local hardworking woman, a very welcoming woman of everybody in her home. So to her husband, Jean, and her family and all the extended family, we're so sorry for their loss. We're, we're, for their loss. we're actually very saddened here today. Okay. We had a, a, a minute silence last night in Beaufort for her and at an event there. And we're just very sorry for the family. Absolutely. Commiserations yeah. uh, to to her and and indeed the family. We're talking about accommodation for asylum seekers after this. Saturday with Conor Mungon on RTE Radio One.